Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, our sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. We are in a section of Paul's letter to the Philippians that is focused on their affairs as a church. And that's the section that Paul started back in verse 27 of chapter 1 and continues here. Paul opened that section with with this exhortation to his friends. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 27 of chapter 1. He goes on then to explain what he means by that. What he wants in his absence is for them to be standing together, striving together, and unafraid of their opponents together. Togetherness, unity, is a major concern of the Apostle Paul um, all through his writings and here in Philippians. And so Paul goes on to then urge upon his friends in the next chapter the qualities and the attitudes that promote togetherness in the church. Humility of mind. Sacrificially looking out for others' interests. Showing preference for others that their needs and their uh, that they themselves are more important than I am. Those are the things that Paul puts a lot of stress on in the early verses of chapter two. And he even brings in the big guns of argumentation by appealing to the example, the sacrificial self-giving example of the Lord Jesus Christ on this cosmic scale. He tells the story of Jesus' condescension from the highest heavens in the form and glory of God to the form of a servant, and, the, and made, being, allowing himself to be made in the likeness of a man, and humbling himself from there further and further, stooping and stooping and stooping further, all the way offering himself in a sacrificial death on the cross for us. And Paul says, There's, that's the epitome of what I'm talking about. And, and so we, can, we should be like him as those who have received of his service. What service he's rendered. Nobody can compare And so we, out of gratitude, should respond in a Christ-like way by preferring others and serving others. And then he gives another reason in the verses after that, verses 9 to 11, why we should want to be like Jesus. And that's because because of Jesus' uh, example of sacrificial service, of his willingness to humble himself, God has super exalted him to the highest place, giving him the, the best seat of the table, the seat of honor over all things. And that's not just a wonderful statement about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus, but it's also a pledge and a promise to you and me as Christians that if we will humble ourselves in like manner and take on a Christ-like attitude of service, we too, in due time, will be exalted by the, God, by the Lord because the Lord loves humility and sacrifice and service. That's how Paul has been arguing up to this point in the letter. And now he, he starts to bring all of this home and put a real fine point on it showing that obedience in these matters is not an optional thing for a Christian. It's not a suggestion for a higher plane of Christian existence, if that's the kind of thing that you are looking for. This is of the essence of our Christian calling, the very stuff of salvation. What we must sincerely give ourselves to, no matter what external encouragements we either do or don't have at any given time. That's a lesson in this passage. That's because... This is what God wants from us, and God himself is dwelling in and among us. In the heart of a Christian, and in the body 
of the Christian community in his church. He himself is there. And so from a deep sense of reverence and awe, it is our job to join God in his sovereign activity by asserting all of our effort and energy to bring his will into actuality in our daily lives and in our relationships, okay? That is the message, the wonderful message of these couple of verses here in Philippians. Let's look at them together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is one of the most important texts in the Bible, not the only one, but one of the most important texts for understanding the doctrine of sanctification, how it works. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy in our actual lives. And it's one of the three essential parts of the package of salvation. When the Bible speaks about salvation, it views salvation from three perspectives. Past, present, and future. And when it speaks of salvation in the past, it attributes all the work of that, all the agency of that salvation in the past to God alone, to God himself completely. A great example of this is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Paul writes to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. From the perspective of those verses, salvation is something effected in the past, completely by God as a gift of his grace. That's what the Bible calls justification. The work of God in salvation in the past, supplied completely by him. Justification. The initial act of being declared righteous by God, set apart by God for God, adopted of the Father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And justification is entirely a work of God. We contribute nothing to that, nothing except our own need, our own complete inability in our sinfulness. That's what we contribute. And God says, here, I will be your God. I will be your father. You will be my son. I will clean you up. I will give you a perfect record in place of your rotten one. And, and you will be known as mine. He adopts us and owns us as his own. That's justification past for the Christian. But that is not the sum total of what the Bible means at all times, when it talks about salvation. It also talks about a salvation that is ongoing in the present tense. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul talks about uh, those who are being saved, here and now, being saved actively now in the, in the present tense. 
It also speaks of, an, of a salvation to come in the future. One that is, it says in 1 Peter 1.5, one that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's, there's something in the past, justification, there's something in the present, and there's something also in the future. When we think about the future, we're thinking about coming glory, finally being done with the toils of this life and entering into the reward of God's perfect rest. And especially in view with glory and glorification, as it's called, is the return of Jesus Christ, when our dead bodies will be raised and remade and made immortal and incorruptible, and we will be always in the presence of the Lord. This is the hope of future salvation, the hope of glory and glorification. And that also, like justification, is something we don't contribute to. That's something God is going to bring about an effect in his good time, according to his secret will, when, when he's good and ready, he's, Christ will return and we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye by God and the power of God. In between, though, justification in the past, God's work, and glorification in the future, God's work, is sanctification. Sanctification. And that we do contribute to. We do. Isn't that interesting? Not independently of God, but in cooperation with his spirit, working more and more each day to bear the fruits of our justification, of our adoption as sons, bringing it into actuality more and more, realizing who we are, who we've been made to be, what our calling is as Christians starting more and more, being able more and more each day to live it out, growing in holiness. That's what we call sanctification. And that is a cooperative, synergistic work between you, the recipient of justification, and the, and the Holy Spirit of God, who he gives to dwell in you and to work in you. And you're called to work too. And that work matters, whether you do it or not. Sadly, this area known as sanctification is an often overlooked, unappreciated aspect or category in salvation. We don't like to talk about work we have to do. We like to talk about things God has done or things God is going to do. It's much more nice. But Paul does not overlook sanctification, the necessity of it, in his teaching and in his writing. He stresses it as vital and necessary and a very much a part of salvation. The author of Hebrews, another author of Scripture, says that the pursuit of sanctification is something without which no one will see the Lord. So we, this is, there's a lot, of, a lot riding on our view of sanctification, our commitment to it, our willingness to pursue it in our calling as Christians. Now, sanctification may seem like something of a paradox. That's because it's the meeting place between God's sovereign agency and power and salvation. He is sovereign over all things and over salvation. And it's the meeting place between his sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
in the work of salvation. That's where they meet. Sanctification is not all of God, and it is not all of man. It is both parties working together in such a way that God remains fully sovereign, the primary mover, and yet we have real responsibility. And how that works is something I can't explain to you. That is above my pay grade, but it works. It works because that's how scripture talks all the time. It attributes salvation to God through and through all the stages, and it attributes sanctification, Christian life, and the responsibility to follow God in obedience to you and me, both and at the same time. Paul does that even in this letter. I want to show you a couple of great examples. In the first place, earlier in the letter, he says in chapter 1, verse 6, this very famous statement, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there you have the totality of salvation, beginning, middle, and end in view, the whole, the whole thing, the whole project. And God is the one who started it. He's going to complete it and is going to bring you through. God. It's all on God. Un- unequivocal statement. In the third chapter, Paul is going to say something fairly similar in terms of the scope of the, of the nature and the progress of salvation, but he's going to put it all on him. Look at this, chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Here's what Paul says his ambition is, that I may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now you can spot indications of God's agency in that, those verses. But the emphasis is very much intentionally by Paul on himself and on his responsibility. I, the things I'm trying to do, the things I need to do, things I'm called to pursue. And he says that as an example for us to follow. Is Paul of Philippians 1.6 and the Paul of Philippians 3, 10 to 14, at war with himself, does he just not understand his inner contradictions? No, this is the mystery of sanctification. God is sovereign, and the primary active agent in bringing about all aspects of our salvation, without him we're completely sunk. And yet during the course of our earthly saved life, between our justification and our hope of future glorification, we are responsible. We are responsible to follow hard after God in vigorous obedience. Vigorous obedience. God's sovereignty does not negate our obedience or the necessity of following God and making an effort. Now, Paul harmonizes those two seemingly at odds or competing claims in many places in his writings, but maybe the greatest of which is right here at the heart of this letter in these verses that we're looking at today. 
Let me read them to you again. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amazing. This is a call to sanctification, to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord in the power and the help of God and all the strength that he supplies in us. I want to make four points from these verses about sanctification that I think will help us understand what Paul is saying. Number one, sanctification is the path to Christian maturity, to maturity as a Christian. Sanctification is the path to maturity as a Christian. Paul, as he's writing to these people, is well aware of his physical absence from them and the loss that that is to their well-being and welfare. They feel it too. They love him. He loves them. He calls them in this verse, my beloved. Note the affection of that. Amazing. But maybe they rely on Paul too much. They've shown themselves obedient in his presence, but will they continue to obey God in his absence? Paul seems to wonder about this and to be pushing them where he thinks they need to be pushed. He says in verse 12, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, that's that when we've been together, I know I can attest to your obedience, but now, please, much more in my absence, do these things. Paul is thinking here like a good father. He wants them to obey whether Paul's there watching them or not, goading them on or not. They need to grow in maturity, their own self-motivation, their own ability to follow after God and to stand in the faith that they have inherited from, from their fathers and to take it forward. Paul wants them to grow to be mature. They need to learn how to thrive on their own, do what is right without his help. The kid who is always disobeying his father as soon as his father turns his back can't be trusted. And a dad wants to have confidence in in his son that when he's not around, his kids know how to carry themselves with honor and with respect and with obedience. Why? Why, fathers? Older fathers are starting to feel this every day a little bit more. You're not always going to be there. You can't be there. You're not going to remain. And so for the good of your kids, they need to grow up and grow in maturity, don't they? Moms and dads. And you want that so that they can stand and take forward the faith, your faith. And so Paul's just treating them like a father. He wants to see them become mature and be able to stand after him and not even need him. A good leader cultivates that kind of maturity in his people. He's not trying to cultivate a perpetual uh, need of him. His aim is to be irrelevant so that people grow up and are able to carry on after him. Paul, in fact, in the next set of verses that we're going to come to, Lord willing, next week, is going to continue to exhort them to some things. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He wants them to be there as a representation of the quality of his work, that there they are, they have... The work has been successful because there they are with the saints in glory. This is a call to work out their salvation and as, a, as a plea to be mature, to grow in maturity, to own the things they've been taught, whether they see the Apostle Paul again or not. If we act like Christians only when mom and dad are watching, only when the pastor or the youth leader is in the room, then we are at best very immature Christians. It's our duty to realize God actually is with us at all times and all places and to carry around that faith ourselves, for ourselves, wherever we go, the need to honor the Lord and to please him, independent of what anybody else is doing. That's maturity. The path of sanctification is a path of maturity, and every Christian is to be progressing down that path with all their might. Are you? Are you? Second thing I want to say is that sanctification requires real personal effort. Real personal effort. It is a call to work, the work of obedience. Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work. <laughs> work. Work out your salvation. It, it, it amplifies it by connecting it to our salvation. This is the stuff of salvation. Christianity is a doing religion. It's not a theoretical thing. We don't come together to banter around ideas that we find amusing or neat. It is an embodied, uh, it is not an abstract thing, it is an embodied, lived out thing that we are called to. Authentic Christian faith is active, it's to be demonstrated, it's something that we are to put into practice and live out. James, uh, in his epistle, says, faith without works, faith without deeds, faith without action is dead. Dead. Inauthentic empty, lifeless, dead. Now, Scripture uses all kinds of action words to describe what our pursuit of the kingdom of God should be like. We're called to strive, pursue, strain, run, fight, reach, do, and be found doing. And the Scriptures are unapologetic in calling us to vigorous action in the pursuit of holiness. Does that describe your approach to the Christian life? A vigorous, active, fully engaged, perpetual pursuit of holiness. Is your life that, or are you passive, disinterested, presumptuous, light, inactive, lazy, cold and hot, 
bouncing back and forth between extremes. Now, mind you, this call to pursue sanctification, to, be, to grow in holiness, this call to work, is a call that Paul makes to Christians. He's writing to Christians, to his Christian family. It is, it is not something that unbelievers can receive or benefit from. This, is, this call is made only to justified individuals, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. An unbeliever cannot work for God to any prophet, no matter how good his deeds appear. And that's because God sees the heart. He tests the motives. And here's what he says about all works, no matter how much good they seem to be on the outside or how much good they seem to produce in the community and the good of the world. Here's what he says, the tester of the hearts. Whatever is without faith is sin. That is, whatever is not promoting my glory, that, that's the motive, and comes from a heart that understands itself as a humble, submitted creature, dependent upon me for every good thing. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So, whatever good an unconverted person appears to do is worthless to him before God. And he is not hearing here a call to work. If you're an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, what you need is justification. Actually, what you need to do is swear off your works. Forget, give it up. Confess the weakness, the impotency, the insufficiency in the extreme of your working, of your efforts, of everything you are. Humble yourself before the Lord and submit yourself to his provision for you in Jesus Christ. Trust in his work. That's where the Christian life begins. And that's who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to people who have entered in that door, the door of faith. Here's what happens when we enter in the door of faith. God, in granting us faith in Jesus, adopts us as, our, as his own, as his own son and daughter, makes a new creature out of us, puts his spirit within us, a right spirit, a holy spirit, a powerful spirit, takes our corrupt and selfish will that used to abhor the things of God, think nothing of God, think much of ourselves, and he, re he replaces that with a new spirit. He makes his abode in us and starts willing and working to make something of us that gives him pleasure. Now, he accepts us completely in Christ. But like a good father with his children, he grows them, matures them day by day through the power of his spirit, through the circumstances that he ordains in our lives. He grows us into something that bears fruit for him, the kind of fruit that he is pleased with. And you have a real part to play in that process. This is point number three. Sanctification is a call to join God in his work. 
to join God in his work, to work out what he works in. That's what sanctification is. That's what Paul teaches us here. Sanctification is a call to work out with our effort and strength what God and his sovereign power is working within, to bring it out, to put it into action. The Holy Spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, makes his dwelling in the hearts of believers, and it becomes our duty to live in keeping with that reality. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Because the Holy Spirit is within us, we have this duty to now glorify God in our body because he has made his dwelling our, us. Amazing. But as Paul makes clear here in Philippians, the Holy Spirit is not there in an indifferent sort of aloof way, like, okay, I'm here now. Now show me what you got. Show me your best stuff. I'm waiting. That's not the Holy Spirit's posture and presence in our lives, in our, in our bodies. What is he in us? He's there willing and working for his own good pleasure to produce the things that delight the Lord. He's bringing the will. He's producing the work. And it's something that pleases him to do. It's really amazing. And the mysterious thing is that you and I are called to join him in this work by exercising our wills and spending our strength along with him to work out what he works in and to share in the delightful fruit of that effort. Isn't that amazing? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are to work in the faith of that and the hope and the belief of that, that the Spirit's in us, that he is powerful, that he is willing, that he is pleased to be there. These are the motivations that we're to have, the knowledge that's supposed to motivate us, the doctrine of this passage. In our pastor's meeting this week, we were talking about this text and thinking about our congregation, and um, there's several ways that this can be, go wrong in our lives. Well, one way is this, and it troubles us. There's a type of person who believes in the necessity of sanctification, but doesn't seem to believe in the possibility of it. A person who believes in the necessity, but doesn't have any hope in the possibility that you can grow to be holy, that you can say no to that sin. That sin, sin is a powerful foe. Temptation is no joke. And it is difficult to face down. Some of us know that it should be faced down and feel guilty that we don't, but we don't really have hope, faith at those times of temptation that God's spirit is within us, 
to empower us to do that work of killing our sin and saying no to it. That's a horrible place to live. It's like a fatalistic place to live. I hope that's not you. If that is you, if this is your view, this is what you think, if that's where you live, that is completely at odds with what the message of this text, completely at odds with the reality of the spirit, of why he's in us, why he's been given, and what we're to do with that knowledge and that power. Now, you may think if God is really in me in this way, as you say, as the scriptures say, why don't I feel stronger? Why don't I experience more success? Why do I lose the battle so much? Why am I so weak? Behind that's really another question, which is why doesn't God completely sanctify us in an instant? Why doesn't he just mesh justification and glorification together into one thing? Why does he put this life of growing and holiness and fighting, resisting temptation day by day, losing a lot, winning sometimes? Why does he put this period of life together and make it a part of salvation? Now, that's again one of the deep questions that I don't know that I have the understanding to explain. Maybe it can't be explained. I don't know. But... That's what God has been pleased to do. And God is good. And he is glorified by it. And we are improved by it. We are blessed by it because God is good. We can trust that this is for his glory and our good. But I do know this. That God does regularly withhold his power and influence in our lives as Christians so that we remember how weak we are. So that we remember we depend upon him. That we need him. That we're completely sunk without him. Because he's glorified. That's just, that's just reality. And it's necessary for us to understand in order to truly glorify, praise and worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit for us to realize through and through how much we depend upon them. And we have so much self-reliance in ourselves and pride that God, this is one of the things that the Lord allows. Day by day, some victories that remind us of his power and some losses that remind us of our need. And that, is kind of God. So don't despair. That's your experience. Use it for what it is. Go to God. Remember his power. Look to him. Come again and confess your need of him and ask for his help. That pleases him and it helps you. And that leads us to the last point. Sanctification has an appropriate attitude attending it. And that is fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As Paul grounding his call to sanctification in a threat. Is he grounding this in a threat? Is that why he calls us to have fear and trembling as we work out our salvation? Are we supposed to fear that God is somehow grumpy or angry with us and, or not quite sure what he's 
you know, his commitment level to us is. And we need to work to prove that we're worthy of his involvement in our lives. Uh, that's not the motivation, quite the opposite. What is the motivation? It says, for it is God who is at work within you. So fear and tremble, work out your salvation with fear and tremble because it is God himself who is at work within you. How does that accord with fear? He is there, it says, working in us, and moreover, he is pleased to do it. How does that accord with us having fear? Not all fears are the same. Not all fears are the same. There is a fear in Scripture that we are told not to have. In fact, a fear that we have been saved from, that's been taken away from us in Christ Jesus and replaced with something else. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 15 to 16. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, towards God. So the fear of a slave, fear that he has for his master, that's the wrong kind of fear. It's not a godly fear. The fear of a beating without love. Fear of a beating that has no love in it. The fear of a life of compulsory service that has no future. You know, I was struggling to explain this in the first service, and I saw a lot of people like, sort of like, unsure and a little puzzled by what I was trying to get across. I'm going to try to say it this way. Uh, there is something worse than a whooping without love. No. Yeah. There's something worse than a whooping without love, and that's a whooping, whooping with love. There's something worse than a whooping that has no love in it, the beating of a master over his slave. And that's a whooping that comes from love. And that's, what, that's the nature of our relationship with God. God. Does God discipline his children? Yes, he does. Where does that come from? His uncertainty about his commitment level? It is a perfect expression of his complete commitment as a father. It is his act of ownership of his children, that he is willing to discipline his children. We have a spirit of adoption that was purchased for us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which has been given to us by the Holy Spirit of God, which cries out to God, Abba, Father, and that comes with a complete, unchanging, total commitment from God towards us that can never change. Just like a good father has for his children. That's a microcosm of the great father and his covenant love for his children, which he has adopted into his household to be his son's. This, there is a fear that is appropriate to that. That is the fear of not wanting to displease daddy. Of not wanting to have daddy upset with me. <laughs> of not wanting to feel his rod. Especially because I know it comes from such love. 
such goodness that I have violated, and I don't want to do that. That is, that's a different kind of fear, the fear of a son, than the fear of a slave. It's a son can't lose his father's love, not a good dad. A good dad disciplines his son in love, not because he's ready to give him up, but because he's owning him, because he loves him so much, too much, to let him wander astray and behave in such an ungodly way. So that's the first part of this, this, this kind of the fear of a son is what we're called to here. Fear of sons. And that is, first of all, I mean, it, it is an acknowledgement that God is in our midst, that he is indwelling us. God himself, our Father, we cry out Father and we love him and we don't want to displease him. But there's also a fear that flows from an awareness of how weak we are, how susceptible we are to temptation, how easily we're led astray, how wicked and self-deceived our hearts are. It's a healthy fear of our own inability and weakness and need. This is the fear and the trembling that we're supposed to carry around in us that promotes and helps us in our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness. The fear of a son to his father, I want to please my dad. I don't want to displease my dad. And I know how easily I can do that because I'm foolish and I'm weak and I'm sinful. Do you have fear like that for God in you? Are you concerned to please the Lord? Do you take lightly the fact that God's Holy Spirit has been given to you to dwell in you? Are you aware of your weakness and your need to run continually to God for help? Are you a child of God? If so, if so, here's what you need to do, okay? Application. Here's what you need to do. Later today, later this week, when you face temptation, temptation to be bitter or proud or lazy or hateful or deceptive or self-indulgent or self-pitying or dishonest or selfish or unforgiving, whatever the temptation is, lustful, however it comes, whatever you face, you need to work against it. You need to have faith to work against it. You need to, you need to, you need to put in some muscle and some effort in the direction of opposing temptation. And you need to exercise your will against temptations in faith in the knowledge and the belief that the Holy Spirit of God in all his power is within you. And he's there bringing the will that you lack and the power that you lack and he's pleased to be there doing it. You need to do this in faith, trusting that he'll be with you and he'll help you in your time of need. Look to him. Cry out to him. Ask him for his help. And you need to do this 
with fear and trembling, knowing that without him, you're sunk. And yet he tells you to put in your effort. And so you do, and you fight, and you put yourself at, in that way in a vulnerable position to God, and you trust him by faith. And you also know and carry around your own knowledge of your weakness and how easily you displease the Lord. You don't want to displease him. You want your dad to be happy. And you do this wherever you are, no matter who's watching, who is there to help you or not. When your parents or your youth leaders or your husband or wife aren't there looking over to your shoulder, and that's because God himself is in you. And you love him. And you trust him. And you want to please him, not your mom or dad, your youth leader. Oh, it's great to please them, especially if they want you to please God. But that's way below the motivation that God requires. That in itself will not help you. You need to want to please the Lord. And you can. Because he's given you his spirit to work, to will, to bring about the things that please him. And we need to get a hold of that in our battles with sin. And we need to live out of that in our day-to-day life and relationships. May God grant us the faith and the ability to do that. Amen. Father, we ask that you would help us. Thank you for your word, for these wonderfully rich verses of truth. Thank you for the gift and the blessing of your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to work and live in such a way that we are not grieving him, but encouraging him and pleasing him and working with him in the direction he's leading us. I pray for any people here, man, woman, child, that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus and find that you have supplied all their need and are willing and ready to own them as your own child and to put them to work in your kingdom. For those of us, Lord, who belong to you, I pray that we'd get real serious about our need to work. Make us workers. Make us fighters. Make us strivers. Pursuers, doers of your word and not hearers only. And we, I pray, Father, that you'd give us faith to believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to produce righteousness in us and to help us resist temptation. In Christ's name I pray, amen.